0: Here we are carrying on in our study through Acts, and today we, we've read a lot of verses. Today, and there, there are many things in the in the passage uh, that we read that uh, need to be addressed and spoken about. And I'm going to come back and do that um, next week. But today, I want to specifically focus in on uh, the 12th verse of chapter four. It's uh, Um, a a well-known verse. And it's a verse that really speaks about the the topic um, of the exclusivity of Christ. Now, this is uh, the reason I want to kind of take it as as a standalone is uh, this is a huge issue in the world today. It's a huge issue in our our culture. Um, You know, we're living in a time when Many people would say that you know anyone who claims to have the truth uh, is is wrong. Uh, you know, people actually would say there's no such thing as as absolute truth, and and these kinds of claims uh, that there is one savior, that there is one way to salvation, uh, this is very very uh, unpopular in our current cultural setting. So I think it's important for us to just spend a little bit of time just looking at not just this claim here, but looking at a number of the claims throughout the scripture coming both from Jesus himself, as well as from the apostles regarding his uh, exclusivity. So um, the the background, of course, as we see, um, this is a continuation of the story of the man who was healed at the gate, there at the temple. And uh, this led to Peter preaching the gospel to this large crowd of people, which then attracted the attention of the authorities uh, who sent had them arrested and and brought before the council. And so that's where all of these uh, things transpire that we read about here. But let's, um, I I just wanna reread verses five through 12 just to get that picture fresh in our minds. So it says, and it came to pass on the next day that their rulers elders and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, as I said, that that very statement right there uh, was controversial then. And as we see it, it uh, caused consternation among those that it was spoken to And um, it is controversial today. So I want to look, first of all, at just the the idea that is dominant in the culture today, uh, the pluralistic view of things that that many people hold to. And in what we have today, a a pluralistic culture, people uh, are bothered by absolute or exclusive truth claims. And as I already mentioned there's uh, you know insistence that um, there there is nothing that is uh an an absolute moral truth or uh, a universal truth there's no one religion that can actually uh, claim or 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 sh- there's there's no religion should claim that it is the the right religion and and no one should say that there's just one savior or uh, one way to salvation. And so, of course, in that uh, perspective, there's the idea that you know either all religions are the same, or all religions, although they might not be the same, they will eventually lead you to the same place. Uh, that that's you know pretty common in our culture today. And so when we are standing on the scriptures and say, no, actually there, there is uh, absolute truth and there is a person who uh, claimed to be the only savior of the world, this is where uh, the, the conflict comes in. So I, th- I think it's necessary for us today to uh, be able, when we make that claim, when we State to someone uh, what Jesus said. It's important that we're able to to back that up. We need, we need to be able to support that. So that's what I want us to do as we make our way um, through this today. But but really quickly, you know, just for a second, think with me about just this idea that all uh, religions teach the same thing. Um, you, you know, so there, there are those who say, no, you can't say that's all, That there's only one way to God. Uh, you must say that there are many ways to God. So one of the ironies in that position is the person who claims uh, that there's no absolute truth is is pretty much saying, no, the absolute truth is there are many ways that lead to God. So so they're making the same kind of claim. They're just making it in a, in a slightly different way. But But they would say you can't make those kind of claims, period. But yet they end up doing them. Now, the idea that is very common that all religions teach the same thing, it's really an idea that has to come from somebody who's either being intentionally deceptive or somebody who's absolutely ignorant. Because just a cursory reading of the different religions, it becomes obvious very quickly that they do not teach the same thing. Now, where there there would be similarity would probably uh, be in the The area of ethics, not always, but sometimes. And, you know, morality, there's similarities there. But when it comes to the bigger issues of of the person of God or or even the existence of God or uh, the way of salvation, this is where there is no common ground. For example, many people don't realize this Buddhism, we think of Buddhism as a religion, it's categorized as a religion, but, you know, Buddhism is really atheistic. Buddhists don't believe in God, or there's no necessity to believe in a God within the system of Buddhism. When you when you get into worship and things, you're getting into sort of like an ancestral worship. Uh, but you know, Buddhism is is based on the idea that uh, the the suffering in the world is caused because of desire, and you want to purge and rid yourself of all desire and, and so forth. But there there's actually no necessity for a God within the system. So we see right there, Buddhism says there is no God. uh, But the other religions certainly would say that there is a God, or in some cases, many gods. Hinduism says that there are millions of gods. And so don't let anyone tell you that all religions teach the same thing. Many years ago, um, we had a visit here at the church on a Sunday morning from... Uh, the Sudanese ambassador. And uh, he was on kind of a goodwill mission going around uh, the country and, and um, you know, meeting different leaders and religious leaders and so forth. And, you know, wanting to talk about uh, Islam and Christianity and a peaceful coexistence kind of a thing. Um, and this was back in the Bush administration when Sudan was very fearful that they were going to... Uh, you know, have something like what happened in Iraq. So they were on a, a mission to kind of protect themselves against that. Uh, but anyway, the ambassador, I happened to meet him that morning. And as we had a conversation there briefly, he said to me, he said, well, you know, look, the truth is uh, our religions both teach the same thing. And I said, well, you know, with all due respect, sir, uh, they do not teach the same thing at all. But we shouldn't kill each other over the differences, but we, we, you know, we're, we're not gonna solve any problems by pretending that they teach the same thing. They don't teach the same thing. As a matter of fact, if Christianity is true, Islam is false. If Islam is true, Christianity is false. You, you, They both cannot be true. So again, just the idea that... Is out there that all religions teach the same thing? Just just simply is not the case. And if anyone takes the time uh, to just look at it, they're going to know that's true. That's why I said some people are just uh, intentionally being deceptive about it. So the the um, you know the the ideas that we find dominant with a pluralistic worldview that the, there's no absolute truth, uh, again, even a statement like that is assumed by the uh, the person saying it to be true. And so, you know, it's, it's just like a circular, contradictory uh, position to hold. So that's that's the situation that we find ourselves in today. And it's in this context that we are standing on the statements of scripture. And Acts chapter four, verse 12 is one of those passages that we are standing on saying, no, right here it says that there is salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, by which we must be saved. That is just one of the exclusive claims that we find in the scripture concerning Christ. Now, Jesus himself, um, he made claims that are exclusive and the apostles then followed suit. So here we have an example of the apostles, but I wanted us to go back and just look at some of the claims of Christ himself, and then look at a few of the uh, apostolic claims regarding the exclusivity of Christ. So when I say the exclusivity of Christ, what I mean is that Jesus makes claims regarding himself as the Savior that exclude everyone else from being in that position. And, And that is absolutely the situation that we find in the scriptures. So John's gospel is a place. We could, we could go through many of the, go, uh, the other gospels as well and find things, but I'll just stick with John's gospel. And I wanna look at two things from John's gospel. First of all, I wanna look at just some of the I am statements of Jesus because these, these are good examples of what we're talking about here. So uh, there are seven I am statements of Jesus in John's gospel. I'm just gonna look at three or four. Uh, but let's start with this one. Jesus says, I am... The bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, he who believes in me will never thirst. Now, what I want us to see on this is whenever Jesus makes this claim, I am the whatever it might be, notice he, again, it's exclusive. He doesn't say, as some would say and insist that he should have said, Well, I am uh, a. Uh, Bread of life, or or the idea is that, you know, I'm the one that that sustains and and nurtures and and provides uh, sustenance for people. Uh, But Jesus never says, A, as though there are other possibilities or options. He always says, The. uh, An an easier one to understand in that connection is, I am the light of the world. So Jesus doesn't say, I am a light among many lights. And if you find that my light is the most attractive, or you think that my light shines a little brighter than somebody else's, then you should follow me. He says, I am the light of the world. And those who follow me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But then I am the resurrection and the life. Again, I am the resurrection, I am the life. But John 14, six is probably the one that is most commonly uh, quoted that states this idea of the exclusivity of Christ. John 14, six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then you remember, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So that is clearly an exclusive claim. Jesus not saying, I am a way. If you like what I have to say, then follow me. Or I am a truth, a one among many truths, and then, of course, I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So Peter, here before these men, he's, he's just basically echoing what Jesus himself said. There is salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, I just had us look at a few of the I am statements, but just a couple of other things that Jesus said in John's gospel as well. On one occasion in the eighth chapter, Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So this is what he says to humanity. Unless you believe that I am He, speaking of the Savior, the Messiah, you will die in your sins. And then in John chapter 17, in his prayer to his father, he says this, you father have given me authority over all flesh. Now these are, I think you can see, these are pretty exclusive claims. Jesus says, I have authority over all flesh to give eternal life to as many as you have given me. So these are the claims of Jesus. But then the apostles, like we see here with Peter, they echoed the very things that Jesus said about himself. Here with Peter in verse 12, but then Paul in in, uh, Acts chapter 17, for example, on uh, Mars Hill there with the Greek philosophers, he said, God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, and he's going to do that by Jesus Christ. So you see, Paul claims that Christ is going to be the judge of the whole world, and then he said in writing to the Romans that Christ is over all the eternally blessed God. So here's the claim uh, that we find over and over again in Scripture that Christ is not merely a man, but He is uh, God who became a man. And Paul says that to Timothy in First uh, uh, Timothy three sixteen. He says God was manifested in the flesh. So these are these are just a few examples, but point being this. We cannot escape this. So when somebody says to you or somebody says to me, look, you know, it's great that you're a Christian. That's fine that you believe in Jesus. But, but you know, don't say that Jesus is the only way or, or don't say that Jesus is better than uh, the other religious options. But we can't back down on those claims because if we, if we set this aside, then basically we're setting aside the, the only Jesus that there really is. Uh, did you know that in some people's imagination there is another Jesus? Um, there's what's called the historical Jesus. Now, uh, liberals have been on this for years. Uh, they've tried to uh, come up with the Christ of history Versus the Christ of Scripture. So in their mind, the Christ of Scripture, there's all kinds of mythology, miracles, and, you know, virgin birth and resurrection from the dead and all of that. That's the mytholo- mythological Christ of Scripture. But the Christ of history was just, you know, Uh, just an ordinary guy, you know, kind of a bohemian type, you know, kind of a philosopher that just roamed around and, you know, kind of a cool guy and, you know, a bit of a revolutionary, got himself in trouble with the authorities, you know, kind of like a Che Guevara type of a guy. Uh, This is what they think. And so they have gone on for decades in search of the historical Christ. Guess what? The biblical Christ is the historical Christ. There is no other Christ. So these guys are just on a uh, an imaginary uh, quest. <laughs> I mean, it's a real quest, but it's for an imaginary person that doesn't exist. It's a Christ they're trying to find that looks just like them. They, they've they've recreated Christ in their minds to be just like they are. So when they say, you know, don't don't talk to us about this, you know, exclusive Jesus. Well, this is the only Jesus there is. And so we stand firmly on the claims of Christ here in the scripture. Now, of course, we do have to admit that uh, to make a claim does not necessarily prove the claim. Now, Jesus claimed things that nobody else has ever claimed, and, and if you just look at the claims of Christ, they themselves kind of just you know, support that they must be true because nobody ever thought to say anything like this. But let's just, for, the, for argument's sake, say that, well, okay, Jesus made all these claims, but why should we believe that they are true? Well, there are things that we can look to that support the claim. And I think in the end, ultimately prove the claim. And so as we look at the life of Christ, we see that the life of Christ actually matches up with the claims of Christ. So how do we see that? Well, let's look at a few different things. First of all, and and this, this doesn't prove that the claim is true, but it's an interesting thing to think about with Jesus because one of the things that you see with Jesus, one of the unique things is alongside of these claims, you see in, in his life an utter and absolute humility. You know, this, this, is, um, this is really unheard of. If somebody were not really the person uh, or, or really this person and making these claims, you would not see a humility in their life. I mean, these are, these are really <laughs> some pretty uh, arrogant claims if they're not true. Claiming to be the way, the truth, and the life, claiming to be the light of the world, and all of that. So, um, you you would expect somebody like that to be quite self confident and quite arrogant and quite uh, vocal about it. But, you know, when you look at Jesus, he made those claims, but he was simultaneously humble. He was very humble. And he was kind and gracious, even to His enemies. And even in the passage that we're looking at today, the thing that's interesting to me is that you know, these are the people that that put Jesus to death. That's who Peter and John are standing before. These are the very men. Notice the names, Annas, Caiaphas. Go back to the Gospels and read about those who who you know passed the death sentence on Jesus. It was them. But here's the thing. Do you know what's happening here? there's an appeal being made to them. They are being given another opportunity to change their mind. That's what's happening here. The Lord allows the apostles to come before them so that they can hear the message again and hopefully change their minds. Now, of course, they don't do that, but you see even in that the humility of Christ. He uh, He didn't wipe them out when he had the opportunity standing before them, and he's not even doing that now. So we see humility. Secondly, we see in Jesus, compassion. Now, there have been few rulers throughout human history that you would refer to as a compassionate person. Um, they are few and far between, but Jesus, he was all about compassion. He was all about helping other people. You know, it's funny because today when you, you listen to kind of the, you know, the modern liberal mind of the things that they admire, well, you know, they claim to admire humility. They claim to admire uh, people with compassion and they, they want to reach out and they want to, you know, uh, bring the marginalized in and make them feel welcomed and, and all of those kinds of things. Well, I just want to say this. If that's really true, if you really feel that way, then Jesus is your man because Jesus did it. Jesus didn't just talk about it. Jesus did it. He went about doing good. He went about healing all those who were oppressed of the devil. You read the passages in scripture, um, you know, where it talks about the lame and the halt and the blind and the maimed and all of those people that, that were brought to Jesus. Now, one day, you know, Cheryl was, and I were together and she was, she was reading over that passage and she said, look at, you know, listen to the description of this. And she said, just think if these were all the people that wanted to hang out with you. I mean, you know, you'd be kind of like, uh, not available today. Uh, you know, the lame, the halt, the, the blind, the maimed. Uh, these are the people that Jesus gladly received. So we see his compassion. Now, again, humility and compassion don't necessarily prove his claims, but I think they, they're just something to consider. But then we have to look at a topic that we considered previously, we have to look at his miraculous power. Jesus had power, but he didn't use that power to benefit himself. He only used that power to bless others. He had power over nature. He could say to the wind, stop, and that caused the sea to become calm. He could take uh, A couple of uh, fish and a few loaves of bread, and he could feed thousands of people with it. He could turn water into wine. He could do these powerful, powerful things, but he didn't use that power to benefit himself. Of course, most of his miracles, as we pointed out, were acts of uh, benevolence and mercy toward those who were suffering and those who were afflicted. And so the miraculous power, these they're like his credentials. So Jesus claims to be God. What does he have to back up the claim? Well, his miraculous power. On one occasion, he said to the men who opposed him, he said, look, if you don't believe me, uh, believe me for the work's sake. I'm doing works that nobody has ever done. If you have a hard time believing that I'm the Messiah, well, just believe in the works that you may really know that the father has sent me. So he pointed to the works himself. But all the way through the, the ministry of Jesus, he always would refer people to one thing that would be the final proof of his claims, and that would be his resurrection. And so when he cleansed the temple and those, uh, those authorities came after him for that, they said, by what authority do you do this? And he said, this is my authority. He said, destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and in three days, I'll raise it again. So the resurrection is always that that final evidence or that final proof. And so Peter is standing for, before these guys, and he's reminding them, as he claims that there's no other name, he's reminding them that you, you killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. And so today, when we talk about the exclusivity of Christ in our cultural context And we have people that challenge us on the claims of Christ. We need to point them to his resurrection. His resurrection is, that is the proof. And the resurrection of Christ is, uh, something that can be established historically. We, we have a historical account of the resurrection. And by all methods of judging, uh, historical Accuracy, the Gospels meet it on every on every level. But of course, there are those who would say, "Well, you know, the resurrection was just a myth; that never really happened. Uh, these guys made this story up." And, and you know, again, people thinking today, they they don't understand. First of all, um, the context of any of this stuff. You know the big big push against the church today in the culture is that or or one of the you know reasons that there's such strong opposition is the idea that the church is oppressive that the church has historically uh, subjugated people and oppressed people and made their lives miserable and supported slavery and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. So, um, and you know, that's just what the church has always been. And so when you say, well, Jesus rose from the dead and these guys were eyewitnesses, oh no, they were in it for the power. You know, they, they, they just took that story and they ran with it because it it gave them power. And so what they do is they project, uh, the church in, in say the medieval period, they project it back onto the first century. You know, in the medieval period, the church had tremendous power, but they project it back onto these guys. You can't do that. There was no power. There was no advantage whatsoever to saying that Jesus rose from the dead in the context that these guys find themselves in. This put them at a complete disadvantage in the culture. There was no advantage. They didn't get any any power or authority over anybody. They got thrown in prison. That's what happened to them. So this idea that they did this, you know, to establish a power structure over other people is just absolutely absurd and you know the problem is the people who are the loudest about these things they don't even have any idea about the actual facts of history. They ought to just go back and read the book of acts and they would find that oh it's a completely different story than we thought as a matter of fact the book of acts ends with The the chief apostle Paul in prison. That's how the book ends. But so let's just address this idea that the resurrection, it's a made up story, as some would say. They made it up uh, to get advantage over others. Well, there's many reasons why that just simply can't be true. And let me just give you a few. The first is that if the resurrection story was made up, They would have never told it like it is told. It is far too honest to be made up. You know, in the story, they talk about their own doubts. They talk about, you know, even seeing the the linen cloths, but thinking, no, you know, I don't know what this means. It surely can't mean a resurrection. In the story, they actually tell that women were the first ones to the tomb and women were the first ones to believe. Now, you know, in that culture, a woman's testimony was worthless. So the last thing you'd want to do if you were making up a story is say, hey, well, you know, these women told us. That would have just killed it right there. But they told the story. And they told it like it was because that is actually how it happened. So they would not have told it like they told it. It's far too honest to be made up. They would have undoubtedly left out the unflattering parts about themselves with their doubt, their fear, and so forth. Secondly, no one would have made up this story because it's clear that there was no expectation for the bodily resurrection of an individual at that time. There, there was no expectation of that. Now, not only did the apostles not expect it, but nobody in the world expected that. If you if you look at the understanding of the Jews in regard to the resurrection, they never thought of the resurrection as, as, a, as an individual, a singular event. For the Jews, a resurrection was a collective thing that would happen at the end of time. Now, for the rest of the world, the idea that, you, that your body would be raised was completely foreign because for the rest of the world, the body, they had embraced uh, a philosophy that basically said that materialism, the material world, including the body, is the problem. It's bad. It's evil. It needs to be done away with. So for them, the future looked like liberation from the body not a continuation in the body. So point is nobody thought of a bodily resurrection like we have with Jesus. Nobody at the time. So if they made it up, they made up something that nobody in the world was actually thinking about at the time. And I think that we can dismiss that. So that's another thing. But then thirdly, again, if you look at the story, you know that after the death of Jesus, the the disciples were completely dejected they 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 were defeated they thought they, they even said we thought that he was going to redeem Israel, but for he's been dead now for three days. so had Jesus not risen from the dead, you know what these guys would have done they would have just gone back to their lives, but maybe not even that. they might have gone and hid somewhere because you know they're their leader had been put to death by the state, so they they might have fearfully went and hid themselves, which they actually did temporarily but they they never would have left their family, they never would have left their 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 businesses they they never would have accepted rejection from their culture. they never would have done that if this story wasn 't true. It just makes absolutely no sense that they would do that but then fourthly, you really apart from the resurrection of Jesus, you don't have a good explanation for the millions upon millions of lives that have been transformed by the gospel down through the ages. How do you explain that? You know, one of the things that always fascinates me about the, the uh, you know, the effect of the gospel on people is as as fascinated as I am uh, at at the gospel's power to transform a And, you know, a uh, clearly sinful life that, you know, has has just been destroyed through behavioral, you know, patterns and so forth. As fascinated as, as I am by that, and as impressed as I am by that, I'm actually more fascinated about the people who aren't like that who, in other words, have absolutely no need from the human standpoint to embrace Christ, but do. That, to me, is an even more fascinating thing. It's fascinating for a person who's really a sinner to say, yes, I'm, uh, you know, Lord, I am a sinner. It's obvious, I need you. It's even more fascinating for a person who doesn't see themselves as a sinner, but actually to become convinced they're a sinner by Christ. You know, it is... is more um, rare to find a good person, a person who perceives themselves as a good person, becoming a believer than a person who understands themselves to not be a good person. But it does happen, and this to me is unexplainable apart from the reality of the resurrection of Christ. But finally, if they're if there is no resurrection then we have to i think uh, conclude that there would be no hope in life or in death i mean what what hope would you have today if there was no resurrection and if there is no resurrection then we could you know take it a step further and say you know if there's a god he's awfully far away and we certainly haven't heard from him and uh, so, you know, you could easily be agnostic if there's no resurrection. But, but in that, where is the hope? Is there any hope? I think we're completely deprived of hope if there is no resurrection in this life, but of course, in the next life as well. What about the next life? What, what happens? Well, some people are happy to say, well, nothing happens. You just, you're, you, know, you just go out of existence. But that doesn't really satisfy most people. So these are the things, the compassion of Christ, the humility of Christ, the miraculous power of Christ, but ultimately the resurrection of Christ. These are the things that, that affirm the claim that Jesus made that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through him, the claim that was repeated by Peter here. Now, as we close, I want us to look once again at verses 11 and 12. And notice what Peter says, because there's something fascinating here that I actually just saw myself. He says, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, Peter, if, if you remember, if you've read through your gospels, you remember Jesus, he said these very same words to those religious leaders. He asked them a question. He said, have you never read this, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? Now, Peter is taking up on this. Now, this is Psalm 118. And this was known, even at the time, to be messianic. And the fascinating thing is that Peter is drawing on this 118th Psalm. And not only is he saying now that, you know, you builders rejected the chief cornerstone, but when he says, nor is there salvation, here's the thing. In Psalm 118, that was the very point of that portion of scripture. Let me read it to you. Psalm 118, verse 21 through 26. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Listen, save now, I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send blessing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this psalm, this is that psalm, Hosanna. You remember that the the people were shouting that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Peter is taking these religious leaders back to Psalm 118. When he says there is salvation and no other, he's referring back to the cry of Psalm 118 save now. Peter's basically telling him now is the time. This is the day the Lord has made. This is the fulfillment. You, but now he makes it personal. He says, You builders have rejected the chief cornerstone. Now, Of course, as we go on in the story, this just further enraged them, unfortunately. And that led to more difficulty for the disciples. But the point is, is that Peter is appealing to them as the builders of the nation to reconsider and to call upon the only one that can save, the one that the psalmist uh, spoke of, save now, Lord. Now they were the builders of the nation who had rejected the cornerstone, and you know this is the truth: we're all building, whether it's the builders of a nation, or any sort of society or community, or a family, or our own lives. We're all we're all building. But what are we building on? If you, like they, were or are rejecting the chief cornerstone, then your building will not survive. Your building will crumble. It will come down. Their, their attempt to build without the chief cornerstone led to the complete destruction of their culture, their country, within just a... 40-year period of time. 40 years after these events, or less than 40 years, about 37 years probably, after these events, the temple in Jerusalem, their their place, their house, they thought, uh, was destroyed. And it has never been rebuilt to this very day. And so it is true. If if a person rejects the, the cornerstone, there's no way that your building's gonna stand. It's not gonna stand the test of time. But what is the solution? The solution is to not reject, but to receive and to embrace the one and only Savior. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other Name. There's no other salvation. There's no other security. There's no other hope outside of Jesus. And of course, I know that most of us have understood that and we've, we've come to embrace him. But if you have not done that today, know that there is, there is no other hope. There's no other person that has come along or will come along to match Jesus There's no one that has ever made the claims of Jesus. There's no one that will make these kind of claims and be able to support them. He's the one. He is the stone upon which our lives can be built. But we have to make sure that we are not doing what they did and rejecting that stone, but receiving him and his salvation, which is a salvation that guarantees our place with God in heaven or in eternity in his presence, you know, as we leave this world, which we all will do, but it also, this salvation saves us in the present. It saves us now and it helps us to build an enduring house. So God help us to receive that. So Lord, we thank you for these words here. And this reminder of how there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Lord, we lift up the name of Jesus today. We thank you, Lord, and we claim him as Savior and Lord. And Father, I would just pray today that if there's a single person with us that has yet to do that, and maybe has even been influenced by some of the things that we've talked about, some of the negative uh, perspectives, Lord, that they might see clearly today through all of that to know that there is but one Savior and that you are the only Savior of the world. Thank you, Lord, that you've saved us and continue to save us as we walk forward with you in life. Amen.